You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We're nearly finished with this series on wisdom, and um, I think we've realized along the way that the way of wisdom is the untaken uh, path, the path less traveled by, as Robert Frost said. It's the one that's probably not even considered by many in our culture today. And yet, as Robert Frost said in that poem, it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. And this is especially true when we're going to come to what is called today, of all things I know, this is going to be kind of a heady thing, epistemology. Can you say epistemology? I knew you could. Uh, so epistemology, it's, I think the first slide there, is uh, from two Greek words, episteme, which is, it means knowledge or even an encounter where you actually get to be acquainted with someone because you've encountered them. And um, the word logos, which is the word for logic or for account or for reasoning. Now, Merriam-Webster defines epistemology this way. <clears throat> it's the study or a theory of the nature and grounds of knowledge, especially with reference to its limits and validity. You're going like, what does that mean? OK, that's, well, it's what do you know? How do you know? And when do you know it? OK, does that make sense? OK, because. Um, there are people who think they know everything. <laughs> Have you met a few? Yeah, yeah. But epistemology, that study in philosophy, has only been around a couple hundred years. And yet it goes all the way back uh, to the earliest philosophers we've ever had, such as Plato. And in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, it has this paragraph um, that I, I know. I wanted to share it, though, and I'll explain why. It says, Plato's epistemology was an attempt to understand what it was to know and how knowledge, unlike true opinion, is good for the knower. And Locke's epistemology was an attempt to understand the operations of human understanding. Kant's epistemology was an attempt to understand the conditions of the possibility of human understanding. And Russell's epistemology was an attempt to understand how modern science could be justified to appeal to sensory experience. And you're going like, who are these people and why do I care? <laughs> yeah, they are different philosophers over time. And, uh, but here's the deal. I don't know if you realize this, but philosophers often think of things and come up with things in academia and other circles that trickle down into society hundreds of years later. And then they affect us all, and we don't even know it. We don't even realize that we're basing. And I can tell you right now why this is important is because when you now meet someone today and you share what you believe is a fact that can be verifiable based on what's really out there, or whatever it is, and they look at you and go, well, that's your opinion. Have you ever had that happen to you? That's because now what they have bought into is an epistemology that you can't know anything for sure. And it's just your opinion against mine. And that's all that really matters. And so all of a sudden, you can now, through that philosophy of what that epistemology is, justify just doing whatever you want to do. Because it's just my opinion against yours. 
And then on top of that, it means I don't have to change ever. I can do whatever I want, and I can assert whatever I want. I can believe whatever I want. I can do. And that's our society today. And it's all based in epistemology. So that's why this is all important. Now, what you also noticed about from Plato on, all these philosophers, they believe that knowledge is a thing that you figure out yourself, that you have the faculty and the capability of having a direct relationship with things that you can verify and understand. You think, therefore you are. You experiment. You adjust your thinking based on the facts that you find out. And you get a little closer to the truth. But we're going to find out from the book of Proverbs, whoo, countercultural to everything that we have experienced in our life. The Bible says knowledge is not an abstract thing or concept. Knowledge is all about relationships. It's relational. It's not so much what you know, it's who you know and who knows you. That's probably even more important. That's what makes all the difference. Who you know and who knows you. And from that, then you can know other things. But if you don't have that first relationship, nothing else really matters. So we're going to be reading through the book of Proverbs. And I've got them all listed in the U version of the Bible app. They're going to go pretty fast here, starting in chapter 1 and all the way through to chapter 28. We're kind of selecting various verses. So let's read them at, before we get into the actual message today. Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 16, be steadfast by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Proverbs 20, who can say, I have made my heart pure? I'm clean from my sin. Proverbs 23, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. And finally, Proverbs 28, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Now, our main theme, like I mentioned, runs counter to our entire culture today. And that is this, that the foundation of you knowing anything is the fear of the Lord. And so Proverbs is telling us these three points today, that true knowledge begins with God, accepts human limitations, and trusts the God who knows. Okay, we're going to go through those one at a time. First of all, it begins with God. Proverbs 9, as we read previously, says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, we did a whole series before Easter, before Resurrection Sunday, on what we called fearful faith, that we um, are, and we're not going to go through the whole definition of fear of the Lord right now too much, but it's reverence, it's awe, it's the fact that God is the most important thing, and therefore, when we hear what he says, we respond with that kind of awe and reverence. Notice the fear of the Lord is a relationship already. It's where I 
am on the receiving end from a gracious and amazing God who speaks, who is involved in this life, who's actually fearfully and wonderfully made me and knows me better than I know myself. Wow, that's the start. Here it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now Proverbs 1 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise instruction. It's not just wisdom, but knowledge. That is, your relationship with God is the foundation of what you think, how you think, when you think. It determines what you know about this world and how you know it. Knowledge is relational. And you only know things properly when you know the one who created this whole world and this whole universe first. Then you can know things for what they are, why they are, what purpose they have, and where everything is going. Otherwise, you just know stuff, information. And for most people, it's kind of like these days, it's the 6 o'clock news, you know, one blasted thing after another. Look at this, look at that, look at this, look at that. And so you know a lot of stuff, but you don't have any meaning or purpose behind it because you don't know who made this world and why it was made and where it's going. Now, that's an extraordinary statement, by the way. And most people don't think that way in our culture right now. Uh, universities are not set up to believe this. No, they're set up in believing that you can know what you know by and through experimentation. We believe God talk at best is secondary. Usually it's superfluous for knowing anything and being skilled at anything or doing anything in this world. And if you're going to bring it into the topic at all, just, well, don't. Just keep it private to yourself because that's where it really belongs. It's just for your personal values. In other words, that's your opinion. It's not my opinion. That's your opinion. And we've just eliminated all of that. It's as if we believe that reason is over here and faith is over here and they don't work together. They actually work against each other. Well, that's your opinion. You can believe whatever you want but this is a, what a reasonable person would say and do. Proverbs says the exact opposite, that reason and faith don't fit together. In fact, um, reason and faith are not opposed to each other. Reason actually needs faith. And I'll show you that in a little bit. Reason really cannot function on its own. It has to believe in something in the first place. It doesn't work properly without having faith. Now, a German scholar named Gerhard von Rod about 50 years ago, maybe 70 years ago, wrote one of the best books on the well, commentaries on the book of Proverbs. And he says this from what he has understood about Israel and its understanding of wisdom. He says, faith is not only not opposed to reason, but constitutes its possibility, its connection to reality. In other words, you have to have a faith before you can make any reasonable assumptions about anything. Knowledge is always about a relationship of trust first. It might be that you trust your own judgment. It might be you trust this person or that person, or you trust that the world is predictable, but you trust something. And you might go like, wait, but wait a minute. The view I have is, and a lot of people do, and you probably know people who say, you can't know anything 
And the only way you know anything for sure is to scientifically verify it. And that means I have to be able to hypothesize. I have to be able to test it. I have to be able to prove it through the evidence I get, and then be able to repeat it again and again and again. And then I know for sure. The only thing you can know is what can be scientifically proven. Now, there's something about that statement itself, though. I don't think you, you can't prove that statement. You cannot prove that the only way to know anything for sure is scientifically proven. That itself is a faith statement. That is saying that there is only a natural world. There's nothing supernatural. There's nothing beyond. It's only within, if I can reason it, if I can think it, if I can experiment it, then it's real. Anything else is not real or cannot be proven. It's only just as if faith, as if reason, excuse me, is the only thing that you can ground your life upon. But it already assumes there's a faith in something. If you believe this world is just caused by natural causes, that there is nothing beyond what you can taste, see, smell, experiment upon, think, reason, mathematically deduce, whatever you want to call it, that it's just a material world, that's all there is, that's great, but that is a belief. That is faith in the materiality of the world, and, that there's, and you cannot prove it. You have to adopt a faith posture in order to reason about anything. And I know there are a lot of people, you might meet some as well, that say, well, that's great. You're a person of faith. You have a lot of faith. I'm a skeptic. I have a lot of doubts. I don't have much faith at all. It's wrong on two points, OK? Number one, people of faith have doubts. I have doubts. I have uncertainties. I don't know everything. I don't know a lot, actually. The more that I learn, the more I realize I don't know. That's number one, you know? I don't base my faith on how strong my faith is. I don't base my faith on all the knowledge that I have. As the Bible says, it's a relationship. I trust the one in whom I have faith. But secondly, to say a skeptic or a cynic does not have faith, Actually, they have faith, too. They have faith in something. They believe something that cannot be proven. And they, too, have to take a leap into that world. Religious people are, uh, are filled with doubts. And unreligious people are filled with faith. David Klinghoffer, by the way, he wrote an op-ed in the LA Times back in 2004. And in it, he looks at this very trend. Our society is becoming less and less religious, traditional religion. I think there's a lot of substitute religions now. Religion of you know how I look, my appearance, my grade point, my success, my money, my you know you name it. We've got them all. But the traditional religions were kind of be saying we're less religious. This is what he writes though. What we are observing in our society seems to be the struggle of religion against no religion. In actuality, it's the conflict of various religious religions, including secularism. Now, if you object that secularism isn't a religion because it has no deity, let's remember that other faiths like Zen Buddhism also lack belief in God. 
What is religion then? Simply this, a system of beliefs explaining where life comes from, what life means, and what we as living beings are supposed to be doing with our few allotted years. Answers to these questions are not provable. They are taken on faith. So everybody has faith. Everyone's a believer. And what you believe becomes really the foundation of how you see the world in all of reality. You come at this world with faith. You cannot come at it without. It's through that lens that you see the world, through that lens that you reason, through that lens that you know, and you structure the way that you know. Now, that statement might just shock some people who come from kind of thinking, well, you have faith, I have reason, or I can just, you know, I don't, I, you know, I'm just a rational person, first of all. Human beings are not that rational. We rationalize a lot, <laughs> but we're not that rational, you know? But um, a good example, but what I'm saying is there is a gap in either direction. Reason has its limits. You cannot have everything just reasonably down. I don't care what you do in life. In some ways, it's unreasonable. For instance, you know, when, when a couple decides to have children, boy, that's one unreasonable decision to make, right? You have no idea how logically it's going to turn out, do you? No. You have to take kind of a leap of faith. But it's not blind faith. You've got a God of promise who leads you, comes before you, goes behind you, right? Because that is the basis of why, you know, Otherwise, it's irrational to have children. <laughs> I mean, the pros and cons, come on, right? Most of the kids are gone right now. The pros and cons of having children, you can add up the economic pros and cons. Ooh, it's weighted to one side, right? You can add up the emotional pros and cons. How many of us have sacrificed and struggled and agonized over where our kids <laughs> wait? <laughs> it's only begun, right? So, um, but that's the way it is. It's not, quote, reasonable. Sheldon Van Auken, he, he studied English literature at Yale and Oxford during the time of C.S. Lewis and came in contact with him. And under uh, Lewis's influences, became a Christian, but for Sheldon, his faith was really a struggle because he wanted everything to be reasonable and to make sense and logic. He wrote a book called A Severe Mercy, and in it he writes this struggle and how he came to understand that you have to believe in something in one direction or another. He says, there was a gap between the probable and the proved. How was I to cross it? If I were to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof. I wanted certainty. I wanted to see him eat a bit of fish. I wanted letters, a fire across the sky. I got none of these. And I continued to hang about the edge of the gap. But then on one day, I realized, my God, there was a gap behind me as well. Perhaps the leap to acceptance was a horrifying gamble, but what of the leap to rejection? There might be no absolute certainty that Christ was God, but there was no certainty that he was not. 
This was not to be born. I could not reject Jesus. There was only one thing to do. Once I had seen the gap behind me, I turned away from it and flung myself over the gap towards Jesus. You're going to believe in something. You're going to believe in one way or the other. You can say that you're being as rational or as reasonable as you can be, but there is a limit to that, and there's always a gap. Which way are you going to go? Bordemer Adler says it this way, more consequences for thought and action follow the affirmation or denial of God than for answering any other basic question. In other words, whether you believe in God or not will tell you which direction you're, you know, how are you seeing this world? What do you make of this world? Is there a purpose and meaning in life or not? Is it just by chance? It just, just so happened? Or is there a direction is there an end goal? Is there a good? Without God, that's pretty hard to say any of those things. So the fear of the Lord, as this passage says, is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. And you need that to know things rightly, to know things properly, to know what really matters, to know where your life is headed, to know anything more than just having information. But Proverbs also says there's a limit. It accepts human limitations quite a bit. There's a number of it. Now, faith, like I said, is not opposed to reason, but it also is saying that there is only a limit to human understanding. There's a limit to what you can know. There's also a limit to you. <laughs> not only that you can know everything. You don't even, you're not, I'm not, what I believe, what I think, what I know, I, my life is not consistent with that. Do you know, the hardest thing to say is I can give advice to other people, most of which I don't accept myself. <laughs> I don't follow it. Have you ever noticed that? We don't follow <laughs> our own advice. <laughs> That says something about the human condition. The Bible's very realistic about this human inability, this human uh, dilemma, you could say. The Bible does not teach uh, that you have to have faith and faith in itself. And faith is always in a relationship with someone else. The Bible is realistic. And it says this, Proverbs says in Proverbs 20, verse 9, Who cannot say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. It's not only that I can not say, hey, I've always lived purely, but I've, I've grown and I've gotten to a point where I now finally gotten rid of. No, I'm inconsistent. I'm jacked up, man. I'm messed up. Paul, probably of all people, as he grew so close to the Lord in so many ways, realized it more than anyone else. In Romans chapter 7, he says, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So now I'm going to kind of, you know, step in it a little, probably. There are Christian preachers and churches that really kind of just preach faith, faith, and more faith, you know. And what I mean by that is, if you think positively, if you make a positive confession, if you just take the promises of God and name it and claim it, and never allow over your lips anything negative. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? 
But if you just do this, almost follow this magical formula, and you believe in your faith, and you hold on to it, then everything will turn out right in life. You know? And your positive confession creates the reality you live in. Wow. I'll tell you, when you listen to something like that, you go like, well, then why do I need Jesus? If I can follow God's law and do it all right, why do I even need his help? The grand story of the Bible from Genesis through Revelation is not one big story about how you can improve your life and live prosperously and victoriously throughout. It's not filled with the principles of how you have to meet a certain standard in order to be pleasing to God so that he will love you and bless you. It's not simply um, that you just have to ignore all the gaps and just throw yourself out and believe and trust and don't worry about anything. The story of the Bible is not about you. It's about your God and what he has done to rescue you, to love you, to serve you, to give to you, and to promise to you. It's not even how God gives out his truth. It's not a book of virtues. It's how God rescues us from ourselves and how he knows us better than we know ourselves. This is what's amazing. I'm studying for the Hebrew Bible class this fall. I'll be teaching at FGCU. And I'm using this Jewish study Bible. And when I got to Genesis chapter 15, it's got all these comments throughout the scriptures on it. And I love how it talks about the faith of Abraham, where it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is in Genesis 15, 7, I believe. And in it, it says this, uh, in the Tanakh, that is the Torah, Nevi'im, Ketavim, or other words, the Old Testament. It's another. Uh, faith, from the Hebrew root, amen, Yes, amen, for sure, certainty, is the Hebrew word for faith. It does not mean believing in spite of the evidence. It means trusting profoundly in a person. Do you see that? Totally relational. In this case, the personal God who has reiterated his promise. Huge difference of Christianity is it's filled with God's promises. What God promises you. And that's what you trust, not yourself, not a bunch of principles, not a bunch of logic, but the person of God who has promised and is faithful to keep his promise. Faith is a relationship. You don't trust ideas or things necessarily. This is much different from finding certainty in yourself or trying to build up this kind of faith system in order to believe. And it really leads us to the third point of our text. The Bible is much more about how God knows you than what you know of God. It is not a theological dictionary, you know, kind of to just grab and write everything down and define it so that you've got it nailed down and can hold on to some abstract principles. It's really the story of God's encounter with human beings and how God comes to you in the person of Jesus Christ and gets to know you so personally and fully that there is no more uh, depth of knowing than how he knows you, therefore you know him. So Proverbs 23 and chapter 28 says it this way, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord. Whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. 
In other words, it's your relationship with Jesus Christ that gives you the knowledge to be able to know anything and to know yourself. God has made himself known. That's the amazing thing about the scriptures, is that Jesus Christ has come to be known and to know you fully. As uh, 2 Corinthians says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. In other words, Jesus knows us so much because he knows all of our failings, all of our fallibilities, all of our suffering, and, and all of our questions and doubts and problems. And he knows it intimately because he took it to himself and placed it on his own body upon the cross and died for it. So the knowledge of God is not an abstract thing. It's not just that he is omniscient like some giant artificial intelligence. It's the fact that he intimately knows you and encountered you at your lowest point. And his knowledge is such that he also loves you at that point. Truth and knowledge go together in the Bible. They don't stay separate. And because Jesus knew us intimately, we can let ourselves be fully known. That's why Proverbs 16 says, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is toned for. It's not my steadfast love and faithfulness, it's God's. That is what he is known for, as one who is faithful and steadfastly loving us through all things. That's the story that you find <clears throat> from human failings in the garden of Eden all the way through Israel being carried on eagle's wings through the entire time of the Old Testament, God bearing up with his people who keep failing and failing and failing over and over again to the point where he gives his own son and his own disciples walk away from him, and yet he will not walk away from you. That's the ground of our being. And that's why, <clears throat> like Psalm 139, which is sometimes called a wisdom psalm, by the way, <clears throat> says at the end of everything, of all that God knows of us and knows us better than we know ourselves, says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's not what I know. It's the fact that I am known. And I am loved with everything that God knows. He's for you. <laughs> He's happy. He's thrilled to have you. You know? And, he, and it cost him a lot to do that. But that's relate. Knowledge is always relational. It's all about the relationships. We said that at Thrive from the beginning. I think that's why J.I. Packer, he wrote this great book called Knowing God. <laughs> and in it, this is one of his conclusions. He says, <clears throat> what matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact that which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palm of his hand. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he has first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me, no moment, therefore, when his care falters. 
That's your God, the Father who loves that he gives his own Son, who sends the Spirit. That's the ground of our being and the beginning of our knowledge. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this day, for um, this book of Proverbs, how we can uh, take the path less uh, often taken this day, sometimes ignored altogether in our society. We think we know so much, Lord. What, What really matters today now is that we are known by you that you love us. And we say with Psalm 139, search us, O Lord. See our anxious thoughts. Lead us. Guide us. Direct us to ways of everlasting life. Lord, bless our time as we give of ourselves today, our tithes and offerings. Prepare our hearts to receive, um, Lord, the gift that you give Jesus, as you gave to your disciples on the night when you were betrayed. And bless us, O Lord, uh, in these days, Lord, that you would lead and guide us always. We live up to you today, uh, Bob Beverly, who is really uh, up in North Carolina facing health concerns, and we pray your healing upon him. Uh, We ask that you would guide his path. We lift up to you all those who are in need of your healing touch, Lord God. We pray that you would guide and direct them to a deeper understanding of how you know them, how you love them, and how they can trust you fully and implicitly. We pray uh, for the navigators here today, Lord, who are getting trained around uh, here at FGCU for a couple of weeks. We pray, Lord, that you'd truly bless them, guide them, and use them mightily in campuses across the state of Florida, Lord God. Do your work in them. And Lord, um, we lift up our mission and ministry, Lord, as we prepare so many things for the fall, as we look to how you are working even right now in the summer months. We ask for your will to be done and your kingdom to come among and through us. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.